0: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, Carrie and Carolyn Booker were first-generation college students. They settled in suburban New Jersey, where they worked as IBM executives and raised a family. Their son, Corey, did well in school and sports, went to Stanford University, then Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, then Yale Law School. With many avenues available to him at that juncture, Cory Booker chose to move to Newark, New Jersey, a city struggling by every measurable metric, where he worked as a staff lawyer at the Urban Justice Center. He chose also to live in a troubled low-income housing development called Brick Towers for 8 years until it closed. In a stunning trajectory by any standard, Booker then ran for and gained a seat on the Newark City Council and was later elected mayor of Newark in 2013. In a special election after the death of Senator Frank Lautenberg, Booker was elected New Jersey's first African American U.S. Senator. It had been nearly 10 years since the last black senator, Barack Obama, had been elected. In this talk, Senator Cory Booker tells the story of how he became the person he is. He says, at its core, it's a story of love, patriotic, political, and personal. He challenges all Americans left, right, and center, to rise above cynicism and embrace love and respect for each other, even if we don't always see eye to eye. Senator Cory Booker's new book is United, Thoughts on Finding Common Ground and Advancing the Common Good. He spoke at Town Hall Seattle on March 24th. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Ware Harmon introduces Senator Cory Booker.
1: Cory Booker is the junior United States Senator from New Jersey, and his media outlets have attested for, oh, about a decade now, a rising star within the Democratic Party. He was born in D.C., but raised in Jersey, and after playing tight end at Stanford, receiving a Rhodes Scholarship and a J.D. from Yale, Booker settled back in Newark during his final year of law school. After graduation, he served simultaneously as a staff attorney for the Urban Justice Center in New York and as program coordinator for the Newark Youth Project. After being elected to the City Council in 1998 and narrowly missing in a 2002 mayoral bid, he was elected mayor in a landslide in 2006. His seven years in office ushered in the largest period of economic growth Newark has seen since the 60s. In 2013, Booker won a special election to succeed Frank Lautenberg and became New Jersey's first African American senator. In 2014, he was elected to a full six year term. He's been whispered about, okay, it's been rather loud whispering, uh, perhaps being a potential candidate for vice president, and he's been featured in magazines and newspapers around the country. (laughs) I'm guessing maybe that's something about why you're all here tonight. At any rate, he joins us to discuss his first book, United, Thoughts on Finding Common Ground and Advancing the Common Good. Please join me in offering a warm Seattle welcome to Senator Cory Booker.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Crying out loud, we have a lot to talk about. Um, So, first of all, it's it's incredibly good to be here. And if you're wondering why I'm walking around here uh, and not behind a podium, it's because I have this Fitbit, and, um, (laughs) and, and I'm in a fierce competition with my staff on who could walk the most steps. Um, and this is the, So if you see me going like this, <laughs> just know it's my staff's fault. Um, okay, this is really incredible um, to be here tonight when I am not uh, the most popular Jersey boy in town right now. Bruce Springsteen is playing right now. So for those of you that are, think you're here for the Bruce concert, you've got the wrong Jersey guy. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm really moved by everybody being out here, and I'm looking forward uh, to hearing from as many of you as we can, maybe in the Q and A or perhaps when I'm signing books. I just want to take note. There's a, there's some very good friends of mine here from my freshman college roommate and his family, who's known me since I was 18. Uh, there there is uh, some incredible supporters of mine uh, since I've gotten into politics. Uh, there's even this guy, Don, my driver for the day. Where's Don? For crying out loud, he's this is. He's right there. This is, this is, let me tell you why he's so embarrassed. This is kind of like a, a, you know, just like me, a middle-aged guy, hardworking, and he's never been to a political event in his entire life. And I, like, drag him out of his car where he's going to listen to perhaps Bruce songs on the radio. And, and now he's sitting here watching a politician, not just any politician, a guy from Jersey, for crying out loud. So it, hug him at the end of this event, you know... He's, he's, he, it's a tough time for middle-aged white guys because um, you know they're getting a bad rap. They're getting a bad rap. So Don, thank you for being here. But really, uh, I give a lot of talks, but this one makes me feel a little nervous for for this particular reason. Um, I, I've got uh, uh, there's 99 colleagues. I feel like this is like a rap song. I've got 99 colleagues. <laughs> And Jay-Z ain't one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I do have uh, 99 colleagues who I, I have come to respect a lot, and I know that's a big swath. But I think that we, for me, it was, it was incredible to come to the United States Senate. And um, I was one of those Americans. I was a local politician who had a healthy bit of skepticism about Washington. And I get there, and I meet some incredible folks people on both sides of the aisle, some of whom, and I, and I don't mean this in a kind of disparaging way, but some of whom have been in office since I was, you know, uh, in high school and college, like titans of the Senate, and, um, uh, and I've got to know a lot of folk. But tonight there's one of my colleagues who's here who, uh, I have to say, if, if, if I had to put sort of a Mount Rushmore of my colleagues, so pick out a few that I have the most respect for, um, I would put this one uh, as one of those uh, people because... Uh, She is one of the more remarkable souls that I've met in service in Congress, simply because she has no feeling of a politician at all. She is a person that gets up every single day, and when I see her in the Senate, she is fighting for not the glamorous, necessarily, issues, not the issues that are the news of the day, but she's fighting for Americans who are often marginalized, who are often left out. She's fighting for the rights of women, for the rights of gays, lesbians, bisexuals and transgender Americans. She's fighting for children. she's fighting for mental health. Uh, she's just somebody that I, I love, and she has a, a characteristic that makes me kind of happy, because I'm six foot three, uh, a, a former football player. You know, I have a little bit of uh, I used to be chiseled, so imagine that, please. Um, (Laughter) Now I just jiggle, but, um, but I, I come in and I, people see me in the room, uh, uh, but this uh, person is, I love it because I have this thing with women who are five feet tall. Um, I just think there's a, like, they're potent. There's lots of like, power packed in there. Um, and so I feel sort of to have one of my colleagues, because most of the time when we speak in the Senate, nobody is in the room and colleagues like run the other way but she actually has come and brought her husband and her daughter and and is honoring me by being here. Would you give it up for one of America's greatest senators, Patty Murray, please? So... You all didn't stand up as a standing ovation. You were just trying to see where she was, right? It's <laughs> like, so, Patty, you should have stepped up on the thing. Hello. <laughs> all right. I, I, am, I am really uh, grateful that you all w- will turn out uh, turned out tonight. And so, look, I, I wrote this book um, because I, I, I had this experience where I was leaving the inner city, the, the city that I governed, uh, for almost two full terms, and I was running for office, uh, and I, I ran for a special election to replace uh, Senator Frank Lautenberg, and then the Constitution says the office is every six years, but suddenly I found myself seeming like I was running for it every year, um, so I had to run for it again for a full term in 2014, and as I traveled around this country, the, the, the state of New Jersey to uh, the wealthiest of our cities, to the poorest of our towns, uh, I, I encountered something that was similar everywhere I went, a, a similar lament, a frustration, always a question about the fact that people were feeling like our country was more divided and, than it's ever been and more broken in its politics. And, and it frustrated me a little bit, not that I was frustrated with folks asking the question, but it frustrated me that it was, seemed so saturated in the thoughts of my state and frustrated because it so belied everything that I've been taught about this country. And what do I mean by that? Well, look, I I was brought up by parents who wanted to enforce in my mind that they they rejected this great man theory of, of our country, that somehow we are a nation where these great men have descended from Mount Olympus, you know, Jefferson and Washington and Kennedy and King, and, and, and that's what led us to where we are today. What my parents believed was that we are here, each of us, because of a conspiracy of love, because of millions of people, ordinary Americans, who showed extraordinary acts of love together. Now, now when it comes to history, I, what I loved about my parents is that they never tried to sanitize American history. They, they actually, around the kitchen table, from their own experiences talk to me about some very ugly parts of our country. That's why when I see people trying to make our textbooks sound like fairy tales, uh, um, the reality is we come from a country with a deep history of bigotry and hatred and sexism and homophobia. We have these dark strains that run through our country. In fact, if you look at our founding documents, these vaunted documents that I respect and revere, but the truth is when you look at them, you see that, that element within those do- I mean, Native Americans were referred to as savages. Women were not referred to at all. There was a great activist uh, named Stokely Carmichael who used to say, constitute, constitute. I can only say three-fifths of the word, he would say. <laughs> That's one of those rolling jokes. you got to kind of think about it for a moment. <laughs> African Americans were referred to as, a, as, as fractions of human beings in our Constitution. But what was beautiful to my parents, what was imparted to me, was that the greatness of our nation is that we were different. We were, the, we're the oldest constitutional democracy on the planet Earth. That despite the wretchedness that existed at the time, We put forth into this world not a nation that was being founded because we all looked alike or or a theocracy where we all prayed the like or we're all the same race or spoke the same language. We dared to say that what united us as a people were these values and ideals. That's what my parents got excited about. And they were trying to communicate to my brother and I that the history of this country is every generation working to make true on those ideals. Some of my favorite speeches by Susan B. Susan B. Anthony, for example, she would call to the conscience of this country and say, hey, here is what we said we are. We're not living up to it. When Martin Luther King stood for the March on Washington, the Lincoln Memorial, he talked about a promissory note that these values, that we are not living them up to us. As, as the great Langston Hughes said, America never was America to me, but I swear this oath... America will be. And and so when I start thinking about the history that my parents told me, if, if people are lamenting about divisiveness, the reality is, is in those documents, in our founding ideals, as much as we talk about individual liberties and freedoms, if you read those documents closely, it speaks to a deeper truth. Even in the Declaration of Independence, what is spoken of in spirit is a commitment to the ideal, a spiritual declaration of interdependence. Think about this. This document, the Declaration of Independence, ends with with them saying that, wait a minute, we're not going to be able to make it unless we make an extraordinary commitment to each other. It ends with those words. We pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor." It's like what, what the African saying is in that spirit, that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, if we're going to go far, we've got to go together. And, and, and this is what gets me about uh, that lament that I often have done myself, and even right now. Trust me, there are days when I'm sitting at home at night, uh, looking at my TV, and I'm thinking, God bless America, where is that sacred honor in this primary? And 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 so and so, th- for me, it, it, it's a deeper understanding of what it means. My, my parents would call upon me that that don't stand there and pledge allegiance to that flag, and not think that you are swearing an oath. This idea that you say these words, "Liberty and Justice for All," they're almost don't let them become hackneyed. Let let them become that that oath you swear. America never was America to me, but I swear this oath America will be that you've got to be a part of this conspiracy of love. And I use that word love very purposefully, and I know it's it's not the kind of word that often is thrown around in politics, but think about this, just derivations. The word patriotism means Mm -hmm. love of country. And I assert that you can't love your country if you don't love your countrymen and women. Now you may not always have to like everybody, okay? You, you may not always have to agree with everybody, but love calls for us to do something more than is being done right now. Because I'm starting to hear folk almost brag, we are a tolerant society. This is we are a society of tolerance. I, I preach intolerance. I'm not, that's not my as- aspiration. I think tolerance is a floor. Love is the ceiling. Love is the roof. Tolerance says, I'm just going to stomach your right to be different because I'm just tolerating you. And by the way, if you disappear from the face of the earth, I'm no better or worse off because I was just tolerating you behind. <laughs> but love patriotism, love, looks at another American and says, I need you. You have worth and dignity. And in fact, what our our history shows, if I could bridge our differences and let the ties that bind us be stronger than the lines that divide us, if I can love you in that way, then we're going to do incredible things. Because the history of this country, as much as we want to talk about rugged individualism and self-reliance, themes and values that I honor, that were important to my family and I know they were important to yours, but, but we also know that rugged individualism didn't get us to the moon, didn't map the human genome, didn't overcome Jim Crow, d- didn't, didn't build our roads and bridges. We are America because of our abilities to come together despite our differences around common values and ideals that have sustained people amidst some of the darkest times. We need to think about patriotism not as a sword. I'm more patriotic than you, look at my flag pin, so on and so forth. No patriotism, the, the great patriots that I've seen in my life, the, the people that have taught me about what it means to be American, it wasn't because of the songs they sung or the pledges they were made. I saw the truth of their love of country in the way they treated their fellow countrymen and women, in the way that they worked to serve them and elevate them, in the way they sought to find common cause and common ground. Now, my Parents made it clear they were tough on me. My mother and father were folk that didn't want their kids, who grew up in a radically different environment, to forget where they came from. Because I know there's there some young people here, and there's some parents, and I know you, have, some people here, have teenagers, and I'm told that that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> but please know that none of your teenagers had more teenage swagger than I did <laughs> all right I mean I had I had a, a healthy sized head and a lush beautiful head of hair too by the way it was beautiful <laughs> I miss it <laughs> and 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 my father would look at me walking around my house an 18 year old thinking I was something special on my way to on a football scholarship to play out west and all of this stuff, my father would look at me walking around and say, boy, and I'd stop and look at him. And he'd go, don't you dare walk around this house like I hit a triple. You were born on third base, young man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and then I would hear those ideals from my parents. They would talk about us, all of us, that we drink deeply from wells of freedom and liberty, opportunity that we did not dig. We sit under the shade of trees that we didn't plant or cultivate. We eat lavishly from banquet tables prepared for us by our ancestors. And my dad would challenge me, boy, don't you just consume the blessings that have been given to you, sitting back, getting dumb, fat, and happy. You, you, you got those blessings so you could metabolize them in your body and keep working because this country's truth still needs to be fought for. The ideals meet, still need to be labored. There's, there's work to do in the field, and you need to be about it. And so I, I have to tell you, we're, we're at this point where laments, we can't lament. We, we've got to be folk that understand that, you know what? If that is true, that the history of this country has been determined by ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things, then we have to accept that choice. And the choice simply is, are we going to accept things as they are or take responsibility for changing them? And that's the story my parents wanted me to know, is that you can't allow your inability to do everything to undermine your determination to do something. That you can't let this world's problem seem so big that you just get stuck in a state of sedentary agitation. When you're so upset about what you're saying, I've been there, I've been sedentarily agitated. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, sometimes she's on TV and I'm getting upset. I feel like I want to take my size 14s off and throw them all across the room. But I know I need those shoes because what did Frederick Douglass say? He said, I prayed for years for my freedom. And I was still a slave. It wasn't until I started praying with my hands and praying with my feet that I found freedom. There's work to do. And what my parents wanted me not to think is that it's someone else's job. And that's when I would start hearing the stories from my childhood. And I'll tell you this, if you have parents like mine and you're middle-aged, you're 40s, that you suddenly realize that, that they have no more new stories. Laughter <laughs> You know, I, don't, I know there's a 10th commandment out there that says, honor thy mother and thy father, and I honor my parents. And I honor them because I actually loved listening to the same stories over and over again because when my mom talked, she had this penchant for accuracy and detail, and I just really wanted to hear. I learned something new every time she told me another story that I had heard again. And my dad, though, I loved listening to him talk because he had this penchant for hyperbole and exaggeration. And every year that would go by, the stories would get more dramatic and awesome. Except for it was, as a child, it was scary because my dad was from a place called North Carolina that the weather in that state was just horrible. I mean, storms and hail, and the hail grew over the years from golf balls to baseballs to beach balls to hatchbacks, and, 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 and my father, I love my dad. But, but, like, you know, it, there came a point where I was old enough to, to say, wait, time out. He, he once started a story. He said, boy, when the tsunami hit our town. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, like, I'm like, Dad, you grew up in the mountains of North Carolina. <laughs> There's no way a tsunami could have hit your town. And my father's, like, indignant. I know you all have a parent like this. And you challenge them, and they get indignant. They're like, Boy. Happened a long time ago, before the internet. You can't look it up, but it <laughs> happened. <laughs> so, so this is what I do know is true, <laughs> okay? My parents told me about that conspiracy of love. And they didn't talk about presidents. They, they, even the civil rights heroes, it was a different kind of conversation. M- my father was born poor, and, and, and by the way, just for the record, if he was here right now, he would heckle me. He, he would say, don't you tell those people from Seattle I was poor. Tell them the truth. I was Poe, P-O, I couldn't afford the other two letters. I was a, get it right, boy, I was Poe boy. I was so poor in school, I couldn't even pay attention. <laughs> and, and... The truth is, he was born to a single mother who couldn't take care of him. He was then raised by his grandma for a while, but she couldn't take care of him. And and it was ordinary Americans that saw a kid in crisis and and, and wouldn't let him fail. And they invited him into a home. A family took him in, put a roof over his head, food on the table. They're not their blood relatives, but they saw his dignity. They saw his worth. They loved him. I'm here because of them. There's no history of college in my family. In fact, I've been able to trace my history back thanks to uh, Henry Louis Gates, and, and I found out that it went from slavery, single mom poor, single mom poor, single mom poor, and my father. But yet people in that town told him, you are going to college so many times that their demands became his dreams and those became his destiny. And before you knew it, He had real excuses. He couldn't afford college in a church collection plate. And he put enough money in so he had enough money to enroll. And then he could work his way through college. I don't know what the ROI is on those dollars put in a collection plate. But those folks changed generations yet unborn. In college, I'm telling you, they landed in college in the civil rights movement. And they saw blacks and whites, Latinos, Christians, Jews, Muslims, from places far afield, names I don't know, descending to the South, boarding buses knowing they would get bombed, marching knowing they would get beaten. Look, there's a power that some women have that's remarkable to me that no matter how old their children get, they can still make them feel like they're 12. (laughs) My mom is such a woman. And so I have this moment where I'm going back down south and I'm, I'm, my swagger comes back. I was the mayor of the city. I was important. Okay? (laughs) Right? (laughs) And so I'm invited to speak at my mom's college. Mom, I'm getting an honorary degree that's important. And, and it's my mom's 50th reunion. And so I, I stroll in there, bringing back some of the teenage swagger. I wasn't chiseled, but I walked like I was. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting at the table. People are coming up to me and saying, Mayor Booker, oh, honorary degree, Dr. Booker. And I'm, in, I'm soaking it up. That's right. <laughs> I'm Cory Booker Dagnabbit. And then my mom, she has none of it. She walks up to this table. Everybody's looking. She says, get up, get up. I'm like, mom, I'm, I'm talking to like college presidents and stuff. She's like, boy, get up. And she starts pulling me. I pull back. I'm like, mom, I'm the mayor. But she's dragging me around to tables and saying, you got to meet this person. They're the person that led our student boycotts of a local business. Pay attention. You're here because of her. Taking me to another person saying, this person was almost expelled for their activism, standing up for your rights. This person led our voter registration drives at a time people were dying. Goodman, Cheney, Schwerner. It was like she was saying, do not forget where we come from. When they got to Washington, D.C., I'm looking in this crowd, y'all, don't deny it. There was a time in America, I don't care if you're a woman, if you're Irish, Jewish, gay, there was a time in America where corporate America didn't want to hire you. And my parents landed in Washington, D.C. when corporate America wasn't hiring blacks. Competent, qualified, but it was a bunch of activists whose names I don't know who, who ran around pressuring companies to hire African-Americans, and my parents benefited that. My dad was the first black salesman hired by IBM in that larger Virginia area. And you give qualified people a chance, whatever their background is, they got something to prove. My father grabbed that opportunity and ran with it. Before you know it, he's making IBM's global gold circles, the top 5% salesman in the globe, and we get a promotion... To, to the New York City area, it's 1969. My parents go to move into the suburbs of New Jersey, but guess what? Late 60s, early 70s, they didn't want to sell homes in these neighborhoods to blacks. And so it was people in that conspiracy, blacks and whites, who formed the Fair Housing Council. They saw my parents in trouble, and they sent white couples to follow them around. My parents would go to a home. They would be told it was sold. The white couple would come behind them. They'd find out, surprise, surprise, the house is still for sale. My parents loved this one house. They were told it was sold. The white couple came behind them, found out it was still for sale, put a bid on the house as if they were my parents. The bid was accepted. On, they drew up papers. And on the day of the closing, as the real estate agent waited, the white couple did not show up. My dad did. <laughs> and... And a volunteer lawyer, part of a conspiracy, he walks into that room. My dad's lawyer. My dad's standing next to him. He sees a little bit of worrying when there's a big dog in the corner, he said. And the the young lawyer says to the real estate agent, you are in violation of New Jersey Fair Housing Law. He starts to give this big speech. One he might have, like, practiced the whole night. (laughs) And the real estate agent wouldn't let him finish. He gets up and punches my dad's lawyer in the face and then sigs the dog on my dad. Now look, every time my dad would tell the story, the dog would get bigger. (laughs) It went from Toto to Cujo to a pack of wolves. (laughs) But this is how I moved into the town that I grew up in, one of the best school systems in our state. As my father would call us, we were the four raisins in a tub of vanilla ice cream. (laughs) And and it was an amazing community. Community of love and nurturing. When two parents were working, my neighbors, I ate more meals at some of their houses than my own. People worked full-time jobs and came home and coached me in soccer. Soccer. On class trips, my mom, working mom, couldn't always go, and other mothers treated me better than some of their own children. It was fertile soil for me to become an 18-year-old with swagger. (laughs) And so, for the book, I decided that I had to go back and research some of this. I I heard these stories all my life. And so I had this idea for this chapter that I was going to tell the story of our connections come right out of the book call the chapter Conspiracy of Love, and I was going to talk about two things. One, that we're all more blood-related than we think we are because Henry Louis Gates called me up one day and said, hey, I have this TV show that we trace the history of, 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 of people, and we want to do one about politicians. We want you to be one of the people. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, Skip, really? And he's like, yeah. And I'm all excited, and Skip's like, like, Cor, cool, you're going to love this. And I'm saying, okay, great, and I'm getting all excited. Then I say, oh, but Skip, you pair two people. Who are you going to pair me with? And Skip goes, John Lewis. And I'm like, who? John Lewis. Which, for those of you who don't know who John Lewis is, this is like pairing Superman with Jimmy Olsen. John Lewis is like the hero of the Civil Rights Movement. And as soon as he said it, I wanted to back out because I knew exactly what the show was going to begin. The show was going to begin, and they they give you little backgrounds of each person. And so this was kind of it. The the, starts off, John Lewis, hero of the civil rights movement, standing on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, standing before Alabama state troopers, confronting hate with love, darkness with light. There were billy clubs, tear gas. He literally bled the southern soil red for freedom. Then my my beginning. (laughs) Cory Booker riding his big wheel (laughs) in suburban New Jersey. Takes a turn, falls off, skins his knee, bleeds the northern soil red <laughs> for big wheel riders everywhere. <laughs> Every time I get my big britches big, God has a way of humbling me. But it was amazing. I love that he researched. He, my grandfather clearly lighter skinned than his siblings. The story in my family was always that he had. Uh, a white father that he was as my grandfather would say illegitimate he wore this shame passed away a little bit before the show but John Lewis I mean excuse me Henry Louis Gates goes back and tests the DNA of people in Louisiana finds a white family who is a match finds my mom's first cousin informs the family that you all have a black branch up in Jersey <laughs> <laughs> I found out in that show that I am the descendant of slaves and slave owners, descendants of, 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 a, of a Confederate soldier. I'm descended from Native Americans and Alabama militiamen who fought in the Creek Wars to remove Native Americans from land. I, 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 he was traced my history back. He said he couldn't believe it to 1640, some early settlers from England It was amazing, and and what I saw, the connections and the relations, it was amazing to me, but what I didn't understand when I went back and searched in the book was I found out that those blood connections is how fascinating they are, how more interwoven we are biologically than we care to admit. What was more fascinating to me is that more powerful than blood is connections of spirit. Because when I went to go check the story of my dad, who has been telling me I needed to know, was it a dog or a pack of wolves? I go to try to find the people that help me move in. I find the head of the Fair Housing Council from the 1960s, who is still the head of the Fair Housing Council today. (laughs) She turns 90 this year. I literally got on my knees before this woman to thank her for what she's done, not just for me, but for thousands of people to find fair housing. Back then it was black folks. Now it's Muslim families, gay families. She said, you got to find the lawyers that were involved. And she sends me to the lawyers, and, and and I find this man, Arthur Lesman, He's 84 years old, retired. And I call him up, and I'm like, I'm Corey. I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your United States. I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> and I start talking to him, and I, I want to know why, at the beginning of his legal career, when he was busy, when he was hard at work, when he was just doing closings and barely making ends meet, why would he and his partner decide to do so much work for the Fair Housing Council? Why did they get this file that said my parents' name on it? He was the guy that actually got the file with my parents in 1969. I said, why? And he says, well, I know why because I made the decision on a Monday. And I was like, how do you remember it was a Monday? (laughs) I'm thinking, that's crazy. How do you remember? And he says, Corey, I remember the exact day because the day before was Sunday. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Got to give me more. And he goes, You no, you need to understand that Sunday is what we now know as Bloody Sunday. And I watched in New Jersey, these people get on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and stand before Alabama straight troopers. Now, think about this. I could probably name three or four people that were on that bridge, John Lewis, but there were hundreds. Think about that connection, that spiritual connection, that love instantaneously, that show of courage, on that bridge, within hours, changes the minds of two white lawyers in New Jersey that then decide, because of that, to go on and help black families, literally helping generations yet unborn. One of them is me, who is where he is because of that chain reaction of love. My parents, talking about this with my mom, she, she loved this chapter because she said, son, it's an illustration that no act of righteousness should ever be underestimated. No act of kindness, decency, or love don't ever underestimate your ability to transform this nation just by lending a hand to someone. You you can't be one of those people that expects the world to change. Nothing changes unless you will. And that change might be one act. We lament about our politics, but we are the polis. This is our nation. And just like a John Lewis, you can't confront darkness by talking about the darkness and how bad it is. You confront darkness by igniting yourself and your own light. You you, you confront hate by being an agent of love. You confront lies by telling your truth. Look, this is a hard standard, and I fail time and time again. I want to be honest, and that's what I try to do in the book, is to, to tell folk how I've stumbled, I've fallen, how folk have picked me up. In fact, when I started my professional career, I was a Yale law student, and I decided that I was going to follow the call of a great American prophet. Some of you all might have studied this prophet in graduate school and the rarefied airs of certain institutions. This prophet's name is Chris Rock. And... <laughs> And the gospel of rock says, <laughs> he has this joke. He says, why is it often the most violent street in many cities is named for the man that stood for nonviolence? Now, in Newark, Martin Luther King Boulevard is actually an amazing street with incredible educational institutions from high schools to county colleges to Rutgers. But the south end of that street in the mid-'90s when I moved on to it, I had worked everywhere from East Harlem to East Palo Alto, but this was one of the toughest streets I had ever seen. Open-air drug dealing that could have put... Uh, movies like New Jack City, the Shame, I moved in next to a, a an abandoned building that' was been used for crack across the street from two high rise projects, moving my stuff into that neighborhood. me and my best friend uh, from fourth grade we 're moving my stuff in, we come back to the car. stuff is stolen and i 'm telling you I was overwhelmed you know it's that, I felt my idealism got a little ahead of my sanity and and i 'm sort of intimidated, but I, I get told that I had to go meet the tenant president in the high rises I go to meet. Lieutenant President, and, and I show up still with that swagger. I summon the swagger, and I'm, I, she opens the door, and I'm like, John Wayne. I'm like, ma'am, little Philly. Um, I'm Cory Booker from Yale, Yale Law School. I say, Yale, Yale Law School, and I'm here to help you. And, and I thought she was going to greet me as, oh, somebody wants to help. And she couldn't have anything to do with me. And I want to describe this woman, this African-American woman, uh, 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 um, she was my a senior, but this is the important part, uh, Patty Murray. She's five feet tall, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 she just was like, you know, I, whatever. I tried to kind of talk my way into her apartment, and she's like talking to me. Phone rings. She doesn't even say excuse me. It just starts barking out orders, and just like I felt like I was failing an interview or, or something like that. And I'm Cory Booker. I don't fail interviews. <laughs> And in this first conversation, this woman takes this young, ambitious, arrogant young man, and she says, you know, one of our early conversations, she says, follow me. She takes me down to Martin Luther King Boulevard. She, she, she stands there, and she goes, you want to help me? Tell me what you see around you. And I was sort of perplexed by what she meant. So she said, describe what you see in the neighborhood. And so I described it just like I described it to you earlier. I said, okay, I see an abandoned building. I see... Uh, the projects, uh, every, I just described. The more I talked, the more disappointed she looked. And, 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 and then she finally says, you can't help me. And she strides off walking away from me. And I run after her and I grab her very respectfully. Um, <laughs> and, and I say, ma'am, what are you talking about? And she looks at me and she goes, something that changed my life. She goes, boy, you need to understand something. The world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of those people who every time you open your eyes, you see problems, darkness, and despair, that's all there's ever going to be. But if you're one of those stubborn people who every time you open your eyes, you see hope, you see opportunity, you see love, you see the face of God, then you can be someone who helps me. She turns around and strides off leaving me there looking at my shoes, thinking to myself, okay, grasshopper, thus ended the lesson. Miss <laughs> Jones and I, I went back, and I went correct. I was humble and just sat at her, at her side and did what she told me to do. In the beginning, it was just like menial tasks. I, I watched as her and the other African-American women fought to keep these projects which were infiltrated with drugs and had, had elevators, heat and hot water that broke all the time. I eventually moved into the buildings, lived there for eight years, and, 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 and saw when the elevators were broken, whole, the, the stairwells, late at night, early morning, people passed out in need of help, people doing drugs. It was tough. Miss Jones... The tenant president, from 1969 until the buildings opened, until the buildings closed, was a tenant president. But in 1980, her son was murdered in the lobby in which I lived. Would eventually live. And, 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 and she's a woman that taught me, how dare you be cynical? For her, cynicism was unacceptable. I now believe cynicism is a refuge for cowards. She never gave up. She kept fighting, even when they took her son. She made enough money. She worked at the county prosecutor's office. She could have gone many places. She could have left, lived comfortably someplace else. But this was her fight for her country. She never wore a flag pin. But she was one of the greatest patriots I've ever known. And for her, hope was not some Pollyanna "Oh, I'm always so hopeful. No. She believed that hope confronted Hope was a response. Hope was never letting despair have the last word. And I'll tell you this. It is difficult for me to admit to you that even living in those buildings with with heroes, I, I really do believe that the definition of faith that I love the most is that when you come to the end of all the light you know and you're about to step into the darkness, faith is knowing one of two things will happen. Either you find solid ground or the universe will teach you, send you people who will teach you how to fly. I got my BA from Stanford, but my PhD in Newark from professors like her. But I still failed tests. And and that's where I want to end. You know, this tolerance versus love, I want to give you guys a perfect understanding. It is so much easier to be a person of tolerance. Loving takes risks. It means putting yourself out there. It means opening your heart. Tolerance looks away. Love confronts. Tolerance crosses the street. Love approaches. Tolerance pulls away. Love reaches out. And I know the great lovers that I've seen, the great patriots, They're people that that get their heart broken, they get disappointed, there's times they get angry, there's times they get broken, but they are heroes of love because they keep on loving. And that's the guy I'm trying to be, but I fail time and time again. I I mess up at times. And in in Brick Towers, Newark had a way of exposing my weaknesses. And and that's where I want to end. Those those buildings, this community got me into politics. There's an old saying, the best way to make God laugh is to make plans for yourself. I was going to be a great nonprofit leader, a crusading community lawyer, and before you know it, I'm a city council person. And in 2002, I run for mayor, and I lose spectacular failure, and I have a piece of advice for folk here that if you're going to have a spectacular failure in your life, have a documentary team there to capture it. (laughs) It's a good movie, <laughs> although it lost to March of the Penguins and the Academy Awards. <laughs> I'm a vegan, but I don't hate you if you eat penguins. It's okay. They're... <laughs> After that movie, I was very angry. <laughs> and so here I was, a part of this community. Some of the, I lose a mayor election, but I go right back to work, and I feel proud of, of what I'm doing. I feel proud of my partnerships. And, and, and then I'm coming home at night, and the kids I watched grow up over the eight years I was there, they're hanging out in the lobby and I come into the lobby at night and suddenly I start smelling things that I really hadn't smelled that intensely since I had been at Stanford. And, <laughs> and my college roommate is like, not me, not me. <laughs> but, but it was pot, marijuana. And immediately alarms went off for me because I'm kind of astute. When I was mayor... I used to say, in God, we trust, but everybody else bring me data. I, I like to see the numbers. You may be emotional, upset, I show me the numbers. And so when I look at my data, seeing young black boys in this lobby smoke pot, sent off alarms, while in college seeing friends smoke pot, no big deal. Because we have two different justice systems in America. Please understand that. As Brian Stevenson, one of my my heroes in America right now, says that this is a nation that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. And the drug war that we have that has increased the federal prison population 800% since 1980, 800%, this war on drugs has been a war on people. And not just all people, poor people, minority people, mentally ill people, addicted people. And there is no difference in America between blacks and minorities in using drugs. In fact, there's no difference in dealing drugs drugs, with the exception that young white men have a little bit higher rates of dealing drugs than young black and Latino men. But the arrest rates for this, the data on arrest rates is dramatically different. If you're Latino in America, you're twice as likely to be arrested for a drug crime than if you're white in America. If you're black in America, you're about four times more likely to be arrested. And then if you get arrested and you're poor and you come out of prison for a nonviolent drug offense or don't even do any time at all because you plea with all these mandatory minimums, lots of people are pleading. In fact, lots of innocent people are pleading. A great book called Why Innocent People Plead Guilty, if you didn't even serve time, you come out for a nonviolent drug offense for doing things the last two presidents admitted to doing. But you're poor. You now face a world that is savage. You enter the American caste system where you can't get a job, you can't get a Pell Grant, you, you can't get business licenses, you can't get food stamps, You can't get public housing. The American Bar Association said there's 40,000 collateral consequences when you enter that American caste system of having a nonviolent drug offense. In fact, we live in this interesting country where it is legal to discriminate against you even if you haven't been convicted. If you just have an arrest record, you can be denied work, denied housing, no legal recourse. And so for... These poor black kids in the projects of Newark, watching them coming home, hiding their marijuana. It's not ha-ha funny like we see in college or the movies. This is a crisis. And what really had me worried was I saw some gang tags and I saw some signs that they might be smelling pot to their friends. And so for me, hey, they're in my lobby. I start talking with them more. I start hanging out before I go upstairs and collapse from long days of work. But then when I saw this crisis, I jump into action. And I say, fellas, and these were great young men, dynamic. One of them, Hassan Washington, he was my my dad incarnate as a young man. Sense of humor, could tell a great tall tale. (laughs) Being raised like my dad was by his grandmother four floors below me. And I'm like, this is... This, this is, I'm gonna intervene. So I, I tell them, let's go out to the movies sometime. I started like, let's just start out easy before I come hard at y'all. And, and, and so pick the movie, and I thought they picked a the Home Improvement movie when they told me they wanted to go see Saw. Um, <laughs> but for those of you who don't know, <laughs> not Home Improvement. <laughs> I took them to the din- out, to di- out to dinner, you know, to the diner. Jersey, we have the, uh, Seattle's got lots of great things, but Jersey, we got diners, okay? <laughs> Thank you for the Jersey in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I bring friends of mine because I'm this suburban guy who's never even drank, so I wanted to bring buddies of mine from Newark who had been in the drug trade, had horrible experiences, got, had a testimony to tell. And I start feeling good because because things are going well. But then you know what happens, guys? Just like all of us, especially me, I get busy. Because the next mayor election is coming up. That's my dream, to be the mayor, to be the man. I, I have dreams about what I could do, not just for these kids, but God, when I'm mayor, I could help all the kids. And I start getting so busy, I don't have time following through on the mentoring programs. The things I was going to do to help out, and the kids are back in that lobby, still smelling of pot, I'm still coming home. But now I'm coming home in the middle of a mayoral election, and these kids are amazing to me. I come home tired from campaigning around the clock, and they're lifting my spirits. They're like, we got your back. We're going to get everybody to vote for you. I feel great. One night, I come home, and they've got lawn signs. Like, line, they line up like a parade lawn, and they, I come in, and I'm, like, starting to, like, wave as they're, as they're chanting what I, want, what I dreamed of hearing. They're chanting, Mayor, Booker, Mayor, Booker. And I'm like, yeah. I get the elevator. I don't know if it was working that night or not, but I got in. And I lifted that sucker all the way up until I thought to myself, where do they get those lawn signs? <laughs> they're expensive. <laughs> I won the election. I'm mayor-elect now. This is my dream. And now I'm even busier than busy. The the, the feds call us up that I have death threats on my life, so they start surrounding me with police and stationing them in brick towers. It's the safest community I've ever been. (laughs) And and you all know this, there's not a person in here when you were a teenager who would wanna hang out someplace where the cops are hanging out too. And so I come home, I barely notice it, because now I'm the mayor-elect, I've got a mission, I don't notice that my, my young men are not there, but I'm helping the city now, I'm the, I'm the man, I'm, I've got important things to do, big things to do, and I'm running around the city, I get sworn in, and now I'm on a mission, and, and, and there were shootings, we had spikes and violence right before I was, getting elected. so I'm running to every street corner. When there's a shooting, if I can, I get there. And sometimes I get there right after it happens. And I'm going around to people as they gather around on corners in Newark. And I'm telling them, this is not who we are. We're going to rise above this together. We're going to get prisoner reentry programs. We're going to get drug courts. We're going to get more police on the streets. Every street, I've got the energy. I'm going round the clock. I feel like I can move our city with the force of the will. I'm the mayor. And, and, and one day I get called just days into my, into my office. It, it's to, the, to Court Street, now dear Broad Street, right by a senior citizen building. And I get there, and there is a body covered on the street, one being loaded into an ambulance. And I'm telling you that I, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even, I barely paid attention to the humanity on the street. I was too busy. I, I heard from the cops. One went down, then I turned to minister to the living it was a long day. Hard work. I get home that night. I sit on my couch. I start going through emails for the day. And I see the one from the police department with the reports from the day. I open it up, filing through. There's the murder on Kurt Court Street. And I see the name. Hassan Washington. Four floors below me. In my lobby every day. They were there for my father. A town would not let him fail. They gave to him. They loved him. They took him in their home. And God puts him right in front of me every day when I'm coming home. And I was too busy chasing my dreams. This was the toughest chapter to write in the book. And I started right in that pain point where I'm coming into the funeral home, Perry's Funeral Home, Central Ward of Newark, run by a good family. But I, half the time I went there, I hated going there. All the rooms for wakes and funerals on the first floor but there was one in the basement that i disliked the most going down there it was like descending into the bowel of a boat narrow stairs and there we were all chained to one another in grief piled on top of each other moaning and groaning and wailing at an all too familiar american reality another teenager in a box And I was the mayor, but I didn't feel like it. I was powerful, but I felt so weak. I had no ministry in me, it was gone. I stood in the back battling with feelings of shame and guilt and anger, and I suddenly couldn't talk to others. My neighbors were there, high school teachers, community leaders, I couldn't be the mayor. People came over to me and hugged me, and I leaned on their light, but the darkness was swallowing me. I didn't know what was gonna happen, so I bolted. I ran. I told the, the cop that was with me, We're out of here. I stormed up the steps, jumped into my fancy brand new SUV given to the mayor, sped down to City Hall, jumped out of the car. I didn't take the elevator because I didn't wanna look another Newarker in the eye. I charged up the steps into this palatial, new, historic mayor's office, slammed the door, and I sat on that couch, and I wept. He was my father. And look at us. We all were there for his death, but where were we for his life? I I warned the patriots in this room, who have the courage to confront the wretchedness, the wrongs, the poverty, the darkness, the struggles of our nation that still endure, I warn you, it's not the easy way. But our history isn't easy. It demands from us that kind of love. And the hard way is still always the best way. Nothing will change unless we change, unless I change. I warn you patriots in this room that, dear God, this country is screaming for you to respond to the hate and the bigotry and the negativity, to love. And and, and when you do, I want you to learn something from one of my professors in Newark because I don't get it right, I just don't. I stumble and I fall and Newark was the city, I I dedicate the book to the community because it, it gifted me the value that comes from a broken heart, from the value that comes from realizing your imperfections and your weakness and your frailty. It taught me that it's not a mistake to lean on another, to reach out to another, to ask for help, to to work, to stand with others because, dear God, I I was taught as a boy that whenever two or three are gathered together, it can manifest the divine. On on, on another day when I was broken by another teenager's murder in Newark, on a day where I had held the kid in my arms as he bled to death, I'll never forget I felt the seduction of cynicism and 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 hatred and, and anger just pulling at me, and I went to bed. I woke up the next morning. I came down feeling like I was a thousand feet underwater, like the pressure on my chest, like I couldn't breathe. And I walked through that lobby of my building, and then it whispered in my ear that that was the lobby Miss Jones's son was murdered, and. and and I came through the lobby into the courtyard, and it was early in the morning, the sun coming up, empty courtyard except for one person. It was her. It was Miss Jones. Her back was towards me, and I stood there wrestling with my own demons, struggling, and then she did it. She turned around. And our eyes met. And this woman did the absolute right, most genius thing that I needed at that moment. She didn't say a word. She saw me across the courtyard and she just opens her arms. And I tell you, I didn't even hesitate. I scurried across that courtyard like a little boy. Six foot three. She's five feet tall. And when she hugged me, I felt like a little boy. And I broke. And I cried. And she held me and rubbed my back. And she said two words over and over again. That's what I want to leave you with. I've repeated these words when I eventually became mayor. I repeated these words during those depths when I wept over Hassan's death. I repeated these words when things didn't go my way. I've repeated these words when I let myself down and others. I've repeated these words in campaigns where I see vile stuff said about me, lies spread about others. I've repeated these words even in the United States Senate on those frustrating days where I feel like I'm banging my head against an implacable wall of resistance, I hear these words. In her arms. And she rubbed my back and said over and over again, two words. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. We patriots who do love this country, we must stay faithful, not in a religious way, but faithful to our ideals and our values. No matter what the hate and the darkness, we need to stay faithful. With the seduction of cynicism calling to us like a siren, we need to stay faithful. Amidst difficulties and trials, we need to stay faithful. And I believe in my heart if we're faithful to ideals of love, and justice and equality and opportunity if we stay faithful and reach out to one another and join hands across gulfs and differences i believe if we honor that tradition in our country if we're faithful to that conspiracy of love i believe that nothing that we complain about cannot be conquered that the dream that still be demands can be realized that the country that still calls to our consciousness, that we can be the answer, I believe if we stay faithful, that we can make true the call of the great philosopher that righteousness will roll down like water and justice like a mighty stream. Thank you everybody. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. It is it is late, and I and I did what politicians do is say they're not going to talk long, and I talked long. Um, but I, I'd love if there's this, this microphone set up in the front here. I'd I'd love it if anybody had a question. I'll I'll do it for like 10 minutes or so, and then I'd love just to sit down and sign books. And if anybody would like an epic selfie, I would like I would like to do that. Um, and, and, if, and if we want to do a Snapchat, <laughs> Patty Murray desperately wants to do Snapchats tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna go uh, just, n- please don't read too much into this, but I'm gonna start on my left.
0: <laughs> I'm a former New Jerseyan and also five foot woman. Um, One of the things I did in New Jersey was to work as a mediator for the Union County Courthouse. And one of the things that I saw were people usually were neighbor-to-neighbor disputes that came. And one of the things that we had to work at was to help people hear each other's stories. When I hear you talk about empathy and seeing the love in others, what I hear is that I need to hear other people's stories and have them hear mine. How do you do that work of hearing other people's stories and helping them listen in your work?
2: I I appreciate the question because I think empathy is not, you're not hearing me, you're not listening to me. It's really trying to open yourself up and surrender your ego. Um, um, and, And so I find it so constructive. In fact, I remember a study I read where it was an education idea And it was said to be a Democratic idea, and they polled Republicans. 80% of Republicans were against it. They took the same idea, and they said it was a Republican idea, and suddenly 80% of, uh, of Democrats were against it. And it just shows that we often don't even listen enough to each other to understand policy. But what I think we often miss is that what I call in the book courageous empathy, um, and to listen to each other's circumstance, and to recognize that your destiny's inter- interwoven with mine. And so how do we, how do, we do that? I, I mean, you sound like you've done it, and have done it professionally. I try myself, and trust me, there are days I fail, but I try myself to evidence that myself. And I just believe the more of us that evidence that, and, and, and again, there's no false equivalency, you know, with the kind of stuff I read online, so please don't think I'm criticizing my side of the aisle, but I've seen, sometimes I see the intolerance of my side, the left, to even the, the ridiculousness of the right. If anybody who follows me on Twitter, I, I try to always cast love, even at the trolls and the haters. Um, um, and, and if they're saying something to me, I try to, I try to metabolize it and really see if I'm understanding where they're coming from. So you make a great point, and thank you. And I'm, I'm going to keep looking at the watch, because I really want to do ten minutes. I may not get to everybody, so let's, let's go. Yes?
1: Thank you for coming tonight, Senator Booker. Um, so uh, in Seattle right now, we're dealing with a homeless uh, crisis,
2: and uh, we, we talked about what we saw, What I saw driving in in, in my car, yeah. um, I was, I was, I was. I'm always surprised when I come to the West Coast cities, and I, a lot of it, I think, is a different weather than we have on the East Coast. But it's something I, I dealt with a lot as a mayor of Newark, so I know how hard this problem is. But please, it be. is,
1: yeah. So the, I, I think the federal government has has failed this country in dealing with this crisis. In large part, the Washington State Legislature has failed this state in dealing with this crisis. Is it up to cities to solve the crisis that we're seeing in homelessness right now? And and if, it's, if
2: it is or if it's not, does it matter? So I, I think the answer to that is a D, all of the above. And, and it's up for us as citizens to demand that common sense prevail at the federal, state, and local level. And to think that we're going to solve this level. I was a mayor. Heroic actions by mayors... I'm sorry, it's not gonna deal with the homeless problem. And I'll give you some examples. You know, we find all this money to send people off to war, all the money and suddenly deficit hawks become big, just spend whatever it takes. But then when they come home, you know what the homeless population is for our veterans. And, And that's outrageous to me that a lot of the things that happened when they were at war contributed to their homelessness at home. So I can go through examples of that. That to me is a very much a federal responsibility. Um, I know I can tell you more about homeless housing than you want, but I'm going to tell you a little secret that could get me in trouble at times at home. But one of my favorite um, housing groups in America is right here in Seattle called Plymouth Housing. And, and, um, and so the first time I visited with them, and I, I did not visit with them on this trip, but I try anytime I'm in Seattle to swing by and just, I'm one of these guys that likes to hug. So I was like, I try to go there and hug on people as much as I can, Um, and one of the data points they gave me when they came in, and now I've seen other places, well, they just did a study, and this is where our fiscal conservatives in us need to come out and flex. Um, They said, how much does it cost to leave a homeless person uh, uh, with mental health challenges on the streets versus putting them in supportive housing, and they found out that with the first 23 people, I think the number was, um, they saved Seattle taxpayers about a million dollars. Just 23 people. Why? Well, I'm a mayor, and you you sound like you're a housing advocate. You know this. People on the street have health issues, and they often end up in emergency rooms, very expensive. There could be a a police involvement, and that's very expensive. And so when you add up all those expenses, I think they only did in this study, the medical care alone, it was far cheaper to have them them in, in affordable housing. And I'm finding out the more I study, I'm a data guy, and so the more I look at the moral things to do in this country, the more they actually turn out to be the economically right things to do as well. You know, uh, look at, look at we, we've tried to, <laughs> you know, one of the most grievous wastes in our country right now is the criminal justice system, and we rather spend billions of dollars on the back end of a problem than making smart strategic investments on the front end. There's a lot of groups like Pew and others have done simple studies about about what our competitor nations are doing better than us, which is investing in children um, uh, at their earliest of ages. And so (laughs) one of the best ways to save government dollars that I've found, if you're looking at where can I invest a government dollar and get the best return for taxpayers, is just something called nurse-family partnerships, which is having a nurse come home, visit at the home of an at-risk pregnant woman through the first year of that child's life. You drive down... Uh, medical emergency room visits. You drive down cases of abuse and neglect. And importantly, you drive up the productivity of that child. So I, I just think that your question to me is really just a, a call to action for all of us. That this is something where we've got to have that courageous empathy and see this as a problem. And don't let anybody off the hook that all of us should be doing something. And by the way, I try to do this, My check. I have this end of the year checklist that I try to do. And one of the things I always say is, what am I complaining about? that I'm not doing something about. And even if it's something small, like I have con- contributed to Plymouth Housing Group because I just think they're great. And even if I can only get $5, look at, for Hillary and, and Bernie Sanders right now what those small dollar contributions are, are doing. Imagine if we unleashed that on some of these issues uh, uh, that we're complaining about today. All right.
3: It is very cool and an absolute honor to meet you in person. Uh, so thank you so much for coming, and thank you for your public service and activism um, as a vegan. Uh, are you rights, a vegan? Absolutely.
2: All right. I must be in Seattle because I never get that um, <laughs> vegan re- <laughs> vegan response. So
3: my but thank the, you very the, much. The two uh, the two mantras that guide my own life uh, in thanking you for your activism. The two mantras that guide my own life are. Um, If you are neutral in a situation of injustice, you have already chosen to be on the side of the oppressor by uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu, and activism is the rent I pay for living on this planet by Alice Walker. Uh, So as a vegan animal rights activist and environmentalist, I represent the growing number of vegans worldwide who want to sincerely thank you first for being vegan and for being the first vegan senator uh, and second, for both supporting and encouraging activism against all forms of oppression, including that of non-human animals. I know that you've seen the powerful documentary, Cowspiracy, and understand that animal agriculture is the number one contributing factor... You're going to get the
2: filibuster complaints from people. Okay,
3: I'm sorry. Anyway, so so and understanding that animal agriculture is the, con- the leading contributing factor to climate change, uh, greenhouse gases, deforestation, water pollution... So... And yes. so, and so, with climate change being obviously one of the most pressing issues that we currently face.
2: Respond. I will respond to what Despite you. Despite the
3: fact that um, agriculture is the leading cause, I what will, do you plan will, to do to address it?
2: Thank you. I, res- I will respond. Okay. So, so you guys are rough. Come on. <laughs> um, so a couple, two quick responses to that, then I'll pivot over here to my right to the man wearing the best sweatshirt on the planet Earth. Um, so, so look, two things. One is I have engaged with a lot of in the Senate every way I can um, with uh, folks that are trying to fight these issues in, in ways that, again, pull people together. So amazingly, I've partnered with Republicans on issues, uh, what I think are cruelty not just to animals but to ourselves, like shoving the, half of the antibiotics we use. in in America are being pumped into our animals, which is driving a a health crisis for all of us with antibiotic resistant strains now that are out there. Um, Horrific, horrific animal experiments going on by government funded agencies that that are are shocking to the consciousness of us all, but we're not talking about. So doing interventions, again, bipartisan interventions to stop things like that. Um, On a recent toxic chemicals bill, fighting to get uh, 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 chemical testing. We got it into the bill. I'm hoping it's going to uh, become law, but fighting to get um, uh, the uh, chemical testing stopped being done on animals when this, all the scientific evidence shows you can get uh, scientific alternatives that don't harm animals. And, and then I know, and I've talked about this in my caucus uh, um, with, my, with my fellow senators, that if we are complaining about the environment, one of the greatest contributors, as you said in your remarks... Uh, to global climate change is the animal um, um, industrial complex, so to speak, and what's going on. And so this is something that compels me. But the second part of this I just want to say is I, I'm, I'm, I, I always joke that um, um, how, do you, how do you know if somebody's a vegan or not? Um, and, and the answer is um, don't worry, they'll tell you in the first minute or two that we're... <laughs> that's how, and I will. For those of you who follow me on social media, I, I, I just post, posted some great vegan cupcakes on line. But I, I also know that, that the, the call for all of us is just to live our truth the best that we can and not to judge ourselves or others. And so I'll give you an example. I'm a vegan for a lot of the reasons this, this young lady is, but I can't tell you where my suit was made. I don't know uh, 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 if, if this suit was made by, in a, by people in sweatshops. And am I supporting something like that? And, and so I know in a free market society, the most powerful votes we often have is how we spend our dollars. And I know I can't, I'm not living up to my values with everything that I do. It's a very hard way to live. But what I try to do is be conscious as possible to all, every day maybe get a little bit better or every year get a little bit better so that I'm, I'm, I'm not participating in justices. Because what she said is what King said so so eloquently that what we'll have to repent for in this day and age is not just the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. And so in this call to try to be better and more conscious, I lean on other people, and I know that I'm never going to be that guy that uh, everything I buy is going to reflect my values, but thanks to other people in this room who talk to me on Twitter or Facebook I'm learning more every day and getting a little bit better. And by the way, if we can wake up the consciousness of each other, um, then industry responds. And I've seen industry respond as well. So that's my hope, is that we all don't stand in judgment and condemnation of each other, but try to elevate each other to live in accordance to our values and our ideals. Sir, you, you, you had me at uh, hoodie. Well, um, so,
0: uh, as you've noticed, I'm a big Star Trek fan. I've heard that you are too. I am. Um, so, I wanted to ask you, right here, Kirk or Picard.
3: Uh,
2: <laughs> sir, the fact that you have to ask, look at me. I am follically challenged. Whether it's real or not, Kirk has this quaff, and Picard was bold enough to be bald. So, so he is my favorite. <laughs>
0: yeah, oh, oh. You,
2: you mock me with taking off your, not only did you take off your hat, but you gave it one of these. Yeah. I <laughs> should have seen it a month ago. Here. Go ahead, come on, we're rolling with, with
1: three more minutes. Uh, then I'm gonna give you a choice. Uh, I got two questions. You okay, can decide which one to
2: answer. The first one's about uh, reparations, and the second one is about uh, fiction in the last great book that you read. Okay, so the reparation question is, I'm like a big fan of Ta-Nehisi Coates, even though we come to different conclusions. Yeah. Um, but I, what I want people to do, and I actually write about in this book, is just please understand that the conscious housing policy of this country was based on overt and, and implicit racial bias and it has driven tremendous amounts of the poverty, That the gateways to middle class from the GI Bill um, um, and other gateways to middle class for many, many, fam- many families in this country, some of the greatest things our federal government has done, were often closed off to minorities. And worse than that, the active policies of redlining and FHA loans and this craziness that we're going to create these densely packed pockets of poverty because, God forbid, we NIMBY and have... Uh, um, uh, and we, put, we break the NIMBY code and put poor uh, folks better spread around the country. So I just want people, a lot of folks to know that we are where we are with poverty the way it is, not by some accident, but a lot of this has happened b- as a result of policy choices that we've made. And so to me, there has to be an admittance of that and it, there has to be policy that's focused on actually solving this. And this is where I get back to my whole fiscal conservative thing, which is when I look at what other countries are doing, compared to what we are doing. They're trying to out-America us. And, and what I mean by that is that I look at the things that other countries are investing in. They, in our competitor nations are investing in children at the earliest ages, from universal preschool to paid family leave. They're, they understand that this is critical to overcome poverty and to create something they're doing better than us relative is moving up in social mobility, the ability to move out of poverty. It used to be the best place on the planet Earth to, to be born, was, to be poor, was the United States. Now we have our competitor nation saying, you know what? We're going to be investing in these areas because we know when somebody rises out of poverty, they contribute to the growth of this economy, to the innovations, the business startups, so much more. And so that's what worries me, is we're this nation that used to lead the globe in education, top in the globe for percentage of population graduating from college. We used to lead the globe in infrastructure, critical for growing the economy. We used to lead the globe, I can go on and on and on but we took our, our, our grandparents' inheritance and we trashed it, and now we're number 16 or so in infrastructure, number 12 or so in, in percentage of our population, uh, falling in, in, uh, in social mobility in the index. And I wanna get back to being the best America in every category and, and start making the critical investments we need to reap the kind of success, not just for the favored few, but for the masses of many. All right. Yes.
3: I'll
1: be brief. I'll be brief. Uh, I'm a law student, and I'm very concerned about the Supreme
2: Court. And I'm can like, I just say this real quick, just so we know, and I want to apologize. We're going to do one, two, and then we're going to come back to the right, and then we're just three more questions, Okay. and then so, jump to the signing.
1: Okay. okay. So is there, you're a law
2: student. Yeah, I'm a law student. Okay.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> all right. Is there any uh, chance? And is the is the all black a statement of some sort, or is it just like <laughs> I look good, man? Is it which <laughs> one? It, it brings out my eyes. It
1: brings out. <laughs> Uh, all right. So, so is there any chance that uh, a discharge petition in the Senate Judiciary Committee can be a, a discharge be
2: filed petition for? For, oh, the American, nomi-
1: for the nomination of Judge Garland.
2: So this is like, I'm junior in the Senate. This is when I should call on Patty Murray to come up here and explain uh, um, why. <laughs> I cannot see her right now.
0: <laughs>
2: um, so... Uh, Patty Murray, if any of you guys don't know how powerful your senator is, and by the way, you have two remarkable senators, and like Senator Menendez and I like to brag that we're the only state that has sent two minorities to, the, to, the, to Washington. You guys have sent two women to Washington. Um, and, and, but Patty Murray is, is uh, the highest ranking woman in, 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 the, in the Democratic caucus and leadership. And, and she's sort of lead, leading the charge, as which I am a foot soldier in this movement to try to get our Senate colleagues on the other side of the aisle to do their job um, and, and to do what Article Two, Section Two of the Constitution states. This will be the first time since they started holding hearings for Supreme Court justices that we are not holding hearings even for a Supreme Court justice. And I, I, I love that I'm like trying to find an empathetic way, like the person over here is speaking, Like, I'm trying to figure out what's my empathy so I can really understand what's your best argument for why you're not doing it. And the argument I hear over and over again is we should let the people decide. Well, I kind of know that the people decided in 2012. And... 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 And they they elected President Obama, I I don't think anybody wrote on those ballots, I'm electing him for three years, and I would like in the final year for him just to chill. Um, um, So they elected him for four years. And by the way, they elected us as senators for full terms, not for us to suspend our senatorial activities during an election year. And so I don't see any reason why we shouldn't... And by the way, I'm willing to concede that when, when Merrick Garland would come up to a vote on the Senate floor... That, that, that the majority Republicans, if they wanted to, could vote against the, and, and, and stop him that way. It happened with Bork. It, it, I'm not saying that it can't happen. But I suspect that when you have the most experienced federal judge, that, that I, modern history has been nominated, that you would get some Republicans... Uh, uh, to say, you know what, I- I'm going to vote my conscience, and-, and this person would get enough votes to be uh, confirmed. It would only take four uh, 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 more uh, Republicans to join the Democrats that might vote for them. So you asked me specifically about a discharge petition. Um, you're talking to a guy that had to two years ago figure out what the cloture vote was. Um, <laughs> but my understanding is, is that we couldn't, in the minority, we cannot uh, 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 execute a discharge petition um, that's something that we would have to do with a majority of, of folks. But I'm going to uh, phone a friend and just ask Patty if I answered that right. I answered it right. <laughs> All right. Two more questions. You are the penultimate question. That's pressure. Can on, you handle on. the pressure?
0: Let's do it. How tall are you? I'm about Patty Marie's height. <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> Powerful woman.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, you're very inspiring and thank you for your service. And my question is about standing for life in our foreign policy. About what in our foreign policy? Standing for life in our foreign policy. Standing for life. Standing for life. life. Because when I went to the West Bank in Israel and around Gaza a couple years ago in 2013, right before when over 2,500 Gazans were killed, hundreds of them children, my question is, you know, I, vo- I feel that we don't value Palestinian life. We don't value black and brown bodies around the world as an American government. And so my question is, how do we value and stand for life as a U.S. government in our foreign policy, given that we have a horrible history of killing people across the world? How do we do that?
2: Thank you. No, thank you very much. Thank you. When you ask a question with that much passion, I just want to hug you. Um, so, so thank you, sir. That was very, (laughs) all right. I'm going to, I'm going to see if Patty will do that to me on the Senate floor one day. (laughs) Um, okay. So, so look, I cannot tell you how much I agree with you that, um, that at the same time that the horrific Paris attacks happened, um, we saw another terrible uh, a terrorist attack happen in Africa, and there wasn't the same kind of, uh, in my opinion, th- there didn't seem to be the same kind of uh, uh, outrage about that. I mean, Boko Haram is killing many, many people, and, and it's a terrorist organization that, in the popular media, doesn't get as much attention.
0: Twenty-one Nigerians just died today.
2: Thank you. And so, and so uh, this is what I, I feel very strongly in my heart that we've got to call that out. And, and so I, people who follow me on social media, I, I love the consciousness. I posted um, something about Belgium and then, the, uh, of course, somebody in my feed, because I really love my feed, because uh, they tell me the truth at times with love. They're like, dude, why didn't you post, uh, you know, X weeks ago when there was uh, uh, this many people murdered uh, uh, in, in, in this terrorist attack where there were uh, a darker people involved? And I think calling that question out is very important. And the last thing I'll say about that, um, look, I wept when Newtown happened. It, it was horrific, horrific when Newtown happened. And, and, and then I watched as phalanx, as, as people came to support those young people um, that were the survivors, and I saw mental health care being provided and everything. But there's something for me as a mayor of an, of an inner city community, of an urban community, majority black city, and I'm like well a lot of my kids are witnessing traumatic violence o- o- often a lot of my kids are dying and it's not and by the way 32 Americans 90 Americans are dying from gun violence about every day about 32 of them are dying from murder every day most of them disproportionately poor uh, often minority and we're not we don't see the same kind of outrage and so we sometimes have even a sick obsession i can name uh, um, uh, how, how how, certain people who are... We still talk about them. I could stand in rooms and say names like Natalie Holloway or Jean-Benet Ramsey, but you can say names like Hassan Washington or Wazan uh, uh, Miller, names I write about, and folks don't know them. And so the question is, we've now described the problem. The question is, is what can we do about it? And the only thing I say is, first, I, I just have a rule with me, which I don't always follow, which is to lead with love and and, and, and don't cast towards other people darkness but cast love and, and and then try to call it out as it happens. And the thing people misunderstand, Alice Walker said the most common way we give up our power is not realizing we have it in the first place. And and, and so please understand and this I say to, to, to those of us who, who have these things in our pockets, it, you, I've now watched studies, I know uh, Senator Murray's aware of these, that I can run all the campaign commercials I want. I can... I can, I can go around and give speeches, but the most persuasive thing to get somebody to vote and to vote for a specific person is your circle of friends. That We have so much influence over ourselves. There are now studies coming out that your dietary habits, you don't even need to speak about them, uh, influence your circle of folks and that your mood, I often say the most powerful thing that's gonna determine what kind of day you have uh, is your attitude and state of expectation. Just your attitude, One of my favorite um, uh, books is Man's Search for Meaning. Um, Viktor Frankl, where he writes, and I paraphrase now, we who are in the concentration camps remember those people who shared their only piece of bread even though they themselves were hungry, who comforted others even though they themselves were suffering. It's a testimony to the greatest of human freedoms that you can strip everything away from a person except for their power to choose their attitude in any given set of circumstances. And so you and I are both media syndicators. If you have more than ten people following us, then we, we are everyday promoting things. And if we're not using that power to talk about our truth, to, talk, to inform people, to send out articles and examples, then we're failing to influence as powerful as we can. And don't underestimate the power you have to influence others. Thank you. All right. This is serious pressure, sir. And, and I, I wish you were bald, first of all. And that you jiggled a little bit more. <laughs> you're appallingly healthy. You're making me feel insecure. So you're already starting off on the wrong foot.
0: I'll try and give you a really good finale question. To okay. Make up to for make
2: it up for it. Okay.
0: So so much of our current uh, campaign rhetoric is around how Washington D.C. is completely broken. But in your first few years so far as a senator, what have been some of the experiences you've had that help you stay faithful? Uh, that there really are still good opportunities for bipartisan policy solutions to big national issues.
2: Right. And, and, and so I, I want, I, this is a, a, one place where I feel a little awkward because I'm about to tell you some things that have restored my faith in what you can get done in the Senate. But I, I say this understanding that this is being recorded and could be played against me in New Jersey. Um, but I watch your uh, uh, senior senator uh, uh, get so much done uh, doing negotiations across the aisle, uh, w- w- getting, th- we just had this omnibus budget that was done where she fought to get things in it that made me, and I rarely do this in public, but made me do my happy dance in front of my staffers because she got so many great things in it for infrastructure, for um, um, uh, for something that's very important to me, the earned income tax credit. So if, if, if she was on the stage right now, she would give you a litany of things, but I just want to give you... Um, Two examples from the Senate, and one example from life. Because I think that's how we should end. Because you don't need to be a senator to make transformative change. And so, uh, and so, I've only been in the Senate for two years, and I went there, not with cynicism, which I think is a toxic spiritual state that undermines your ability to see faint hope amongst glaring problems. But I went there with skepticism, because I used to be a mayor, and, and mayors, if I saw a field, I could say, we're gonna build the city, the state's largest urban garden, and within months, I could get it done. As a senator, I worried that I couldn't have that feeling. And, and when I got there, though, I found out that humility, um, that, that reaching out to Republican colleagues, that sitting before senior sen- senators and willing to learn, that you can get things done real quick. And in my first days in the Senate, I found out that, you know, there was an FHA program that the poorest county in my state wasn't participating in. And we got hundreds of people secured in their loans. I found out that, um, uh, that there was a traumatic brain injury center for veterans coming home that was, they were about to lose access to and I could intervene. And so I found in the Senate that we may not have done immigration reform yet. Uh, um, there's a bill that I've been working on for two years, massive criminal justice reform bill, um, that I'm praying we get done in this Congress, but those take a long time. But if you send someone to the Senate who especially like your two senators who I watch Um, uh, Senator Cantwell uh, and Senator Murray, every single day they're scrappers. They find ways to push things across the finish line every day. And then there's the silent things that I know this from Senator Murray's staff, not from her, that they score big victories that you'll never read about in the newspaper, like that person that's been denied veteran benefits, and they help that person get veteran benefits. It's the calls for somebody that has a family member that's being threatened with de- deporting, and they're an American citizen, and that person's not. There's ways to do things that make a difference in people's lives. And this is how I'm going to end, and then I'd, I'm going to sit right here and sign books, because, and you're gonna, I'm going to make you awkwardly stand there. Um, 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 but I, I just want to tell this story because... It's, it's a, a, a lighter way to end, but it's just a life lesson that I have um, from my time when I was a Stanford football player. And I want to tell stories about when I was a Stanford football player because I cannot in, in, in impose upon you enough how chiseled I really, really was. <laughs> and, and, and so it, it, was, it took a long time in the morning to get ready because I had to stand there and flex and just admire what God had created. Um, now I get dressed really quickly, um, <laughs> as fast as I can. Um, so I'm, I'm traveling back and forth across the country uh, um, uh, to fly to Stanford, and um, I think that you could see the evolved spiritual state of, 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 of other people and yourself when you do airline travel, because that could take the most peaceful monk-like person and get them to lose their patience and their control. And so I'm, I'm, I'm a teenager at this point and I'm traveling across country and I, I'm getting on a plane. It's going to be a six-hour flight when you're 6'3". And they put there, it's just hell. I'm, I know it's going to be like this. For, and, and I get on this plane flight. I get my carry-on. I get settled in. It's like a sardine can. Everybody's there packed in coach. I sit down and the door closes. And then suddenly I notice that next to me Every seat on the plane is full except for the two seats next to me. It's like I have acres. I have hectares of space. And, and, and I come to the only logical conclusion that I could come to at that point in my life, which is that God loved me more than all the other people on the plane because he had bequeathed to me the hectares. And so... And so I'm sitting back there, smug, looking around at these folks and just feeling pity for them. And, and of course, in my mind, I'm going back to, to, to Bible study and just singing, Yes, Jesus loves me. <laughs> and, 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 and then the door to the plane opens. And, like, cacophonous screams come through into the cabin that shuts everybody up. And we all stop, and we're all, like, staring at the door, wondering what kind of beast might come through. And it, it, it was a beast that entered. It had three heads. It was a woman, a little boy, and a baby. <laughs> and it wasn't just a regular baby. This was, like, straight out of X-Men. I mean, it had mutant powers. I, I think... It, it didn't have lungs. It had speakers that were plugged into some nuclear-generated... I mean, it had... Bows could not create something so efficient. And, and, and so now everybody on the plane looks at her and then slowly turns to me... <laughs> and, and I could read everybody's mind. Everybody is thinking, You smug, chiseled man. And... and <laughs> And, and, and then she walks down, and I don't care what people say, that there's no such thing as a stupid question. Yes, there are. And, and I've asked a lot of them in my days because she comes over there and says, Sir, I'm sitting there. And she, I look at her and I go, Are you sure? <laughs> and, 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 and so next thing I know, my, my hectares are full of three, two seats, three bodies, and she plops the, 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 the boy right down next to me, and she's sitting there with a crying baby. And I think to myself, this is going to be the worst flight of my life. And then I remember that question that we all have to answer in every moment of our life. Do we accept things as they are? Do we surrender to cynicism? Or, or do we take responsibility for changing things? And I don't know that evolved thought creeped into my mind. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to make this the best flight of my life. And I turned around, and I started contorting my face, making faces at the baby, um, until the woman was just started. she started cracking up. I don't know if it stopped the baby from crying, but eventually it stopped, and I started talking to the woman, and immediately, this is the gift of compassion and empathy, because as soon as I got out of my own drama and plugged into her, I realized that actually... I didn't have it bad. The person who had it worse on the flight was her because everybody else on the plane, or many of us, were cutting her with their eyes as if she did something purposeful. Like outside of the plane, she's like, "Okay, baby, cry as loud as you can right now," because we're going to show everybody in there. And and we just started talking. She started decompressing. I started decompressing. We started laughing. Plane takes off. We're now talking. I'm playing tic tac toe and hangman with the little boy. And and then, amazingly, I'll never. This is how like I have flights all the time. I forget them. But I remember even the movie, because the movie Glory came on, and and she's uh, like, oh, I haven't seen a movie in the longest time. She had two small kids. And I said, oh, you got to watch this movie, Denzel Washington. There's a scene where he's doing this and just looking. And you guys know what I'm talking about. If you saw the movie, and, and and, and, and she says, thank you, thank you. I go, don't worry about it. I'm going to hang out with your young man. And, and so she puts the headphones on. And for me, it's like a signal that I can unleash on this young man with all the jokes I have appropriate for a nine-year-old. And I have so much material, everybody. And there it just went. I said, why did Tigger and Eeyore have their heads in the toilet? Because they were looking for poo. LAUGHTER um, <laughs> It was, it was heaven for me and my dad jokes. And I'm having a good time. And we're laughing. It was the quickest plane flight of my life. We land. Uh, um, we exchange addresses saying we'll keep in touch. We didn't keep in touch. You know, I go on. My college roommate's here. College goes on. Grad school, law school, Oxford. I, I'm now, like, professional. Years and years passed. And now, in that, those of you who saw a street fight, I'm now running for mayor and getting... Like beat down on one of my most discouraged days, I get this letter in the mail saying, you may not remember me, um, but I met you years ago when you were a college student on a plane ride. It was the first time I was ever flying with my kids, and I thought it was going to be a nightmare, but because of you, I was so fortunate to sit next to you. And she went on to tell me about what it meant to her, my kindness, and everything, and then it turns out that she said, look, I've been seeing you in the media, and I own a factory, my family owns a factory in Newark. And she invites me to go to the factory to speak and next thing you know, uh, she, she testifies to her employees that I don't know what his, his platform is, but I can tell you about his character. And, and some of her employees got so involved in my campaign, took me to their church, and then the little boy who I had tortured with all those jokes, <laughs> who perhaps had to go to like decades of counseling, he now, he now became one of my best campaign volunteers. And, and amazingly, the, the the couple did something that we of my time love, my type loves this. They became donors to my campaign. <laughs> and, 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 and so this is the universe we live in. I don't know if you all know this. It's, this is the universe where every day there's an opportunity to change things, to be an agent. And in the Senate, one of my favorite moments in the Senate, which I think actually goes for all of us well my favorite I'm in the beginning of the Senate, I'm new, everything is like it still is actually like in awe to me and it's not lost on me and I'm sitting there and there's some people complaining because we're in this this like twenty four hour voting session. I think it might have been Ted Cruz who did it to us um, and <laughs> I love Ted Cruz. <laughs> I don't always like him, but I love him and and so. And so somebody's complaining, and then there's one of my older, elder, but newer senators there, um, the former uh, governor uh, of Maine, uh, um, is there, and he, he's. <laughs> <laughs> Are you an Angus King fan? Yes. He leans over to me, he nudges me like this, and I, and I go, What? He goes, Corey, there should be a sign up in the Senate. And I go, What should it say? And he goes, It should say, No whining on the yacht. Uh, you're a senator. <laughs> And, and so I have, the, I have an incredible job, but I want to tell you that in my life, even before I was a senator, before I was a mayor, uh, I learned that gratitude should be our gravity. It, it should keep us grounded in the understanding that we have come so far by faithfulness. And if we stay committed to that, there will be chances, whether you're in politics or in your neighborhood or on social media, where we can all make a profound difference in the world. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Man.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaker's Forum from KUOW 94.9 FM. Senator Cory Booker's new book is United, Thoughts on Finding Common Ground and Advancing the Common Good. He spoke at Town Hall Seattle on March 24th. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon.